Ho, 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 hello, and welcome to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movies podcast that spent a day in a dystopia where I was never born and returned to find things, well, honestly, pretty much the same, which is a little bit offensive, actually. Hello, everybody. I'm Helen O'Hara, and I'm back once again to talk about this year's Christmas movies. Just a little bit of housekeeping. I don't tend to do these in any particular order. I don't tend to announce when things are right because, let's be honest, I'm not that organised and I don't know. But I will say that one of this year's best Christmas films, in fact, one of the best Christmas films in years, is not out until January 19th. So I just want to flag up at this point that one of our episodes covering the holdovers will not be out until January. So while I would normally advise you to sort of, you know, hibernate your bar humbug listening for 11 months a year, in this case, please do rejoin us in January for one special episode covering the holdovers, which is a fantastic movie. But that's not the only one out this year, thank goodness. And here today we are going to be talking about It's a Wonderful Knife, a film that is going to struggle, I'll be honest, to live up to the potential of that incredible title. Um, But this is a slight spin, kind of ish, on the famous It's a Wonderful Life, of course. Uh, This one has a horror tinge. It's available on Shudder, if you're listening to this here in the UK. And it is the story of a girl who defeats a serial killer one year, but when her life gets much, much worse and things get tough the following year, she wishes she had never been born and gets to see what would happen if that were so. Here with me to talk about it is uh, an Empire colleague, one of the hosts, one of the one of the senior lecturers, if you will, at Disneyversity. It is, of course, Ben Travis. How are you doing, Ben? Hello, I'm good. I'm thrilled to be talking about Christmas movies. I'm thrilled to be talking about a horror movie on a Christmas podcast. This is where I want to be. This is, yeah, this is, I feel like people underestimate how much great Christmas horror there is. And yeah. especially in the last couple of years, like Shudder has really been raising the game for how much they're they're doing in this space. Yeah, Shudder is a, is a bounteous gift to horror fans around the world. And we're in a real like holiday horror zone at the moment. Like the last two films I watched happened to be It's a Wonderful Knife and Eli Roth's Thanksgiving. Mm. Um, it feels like there's a real spate at the moment of like Christmas slashers, holiday-based slashers. And, you know, if you take a time of year or you take a known genre and mash it up with a slasher film, it tends to go really well. It tends to be a fun, fun watch. Yeah, well, I mean, that's something worth talking about because one of the mashups of slasher and genre in the last few years, one that I know we both love, is Freaky. And that was the one that mashed up a slasher movie with a body swap comedy. So you had basically a teen girl victim and the middle-aged, big, giant, scary-looking slasher killer swapping bodies mid-attempted murder. Uh, and then the girl now in this in the body of this wanted criminal has to figure out a way to stop the killer now in the body of this innocent looking girl. Amazing, amazing premise for a film. Yeah. Really, really fun. And it's one of the writers of that movie, Michael Kennedy, who co-wrote this. Yeah. So he wrote uh, It's a Wonderful Knife and wrote on Freaky as well. Um, and Freaky directed by Christopher Landon, who also did Happy Death Day, which was like a Groundhog Day slasher so like a time loop slasher and the sequel to that was basically a back to the future part two thing there is this glorious like growing realm of 
slasher mashups. Are we calling them slash-ups? Is that a thing yet? Slash-ups, let's do it, yes. Slash-ups. There was one earlier this year as well called Totally Killer that was again Mm. a bit of a Back to the Future thing with Kin and Shipka from uh, the Sabrina reboot where she goes back to the 80s and she has to solve a slasher mystery in the past to get back to the present or something. They're always really good fun. And Michael Kennedy, yeah, is absolutely carving up a niche for himself as one of the architects of this between Freaky, which, I mean, in terms of titles and premises, Freaky Friday the 13th is basically what that is. Mm. And as you say, just hearing the title, It's a Wonderful Knife. As soon as I heard that he was doing this, I was like, I, I mean, I need to see that. I need to see it as soon as possible. Very much. So let's let's talk about this one. So this one stars Jane Widdop, um, who just for clarity, they are non-binary. They are playing a character who is female. So we're going to be, if we're mixing up pronouns, hopefully we're using the she, her to refer to the character, um, but they, them to refer to the actress. But um, but Widdop, I think, does a really good role. People may have seen them in, in Yellow Jackets, which is a fantastic show. I mean, if we're talking about horror premises. Um, that's cannibalism and, you know, hunting your, down your schoolmates and all sorts. So um, so this is obviously, a, you know, an area that they're comfortable in. But even given that, you know, this, this is really stepping up to an absolute lead role. This is, uh, the character is Winnie, who saves her town by killing this psychotic killer. And it is no spoiler because it's first act stuff to say that that killer is someone in a position of authority in the town and then wishes that she hadn't been born a year year on because life has gotten difficult and then has to essentially do it all over again except now the killer is even more powerful than before yeah there are some twists on that formula it's it's it works really well in these films to deliver in like 15 20 minutes the slasher film that would originally be like a full movie in its own right and we just whiz through that in like 20 minutes half an hour and then as the second act kicks in, you get to twist the knife. Are we going there? It's, you get to, to mix things up and have these characters relive these situations in different ways and allow those differences to really progress the characters. And yeah, Winnie, I thought, was a really likable character. I really felt for her. And Jane Widdop, I actually haven't seen Yellow Jackets. I know some people love that show, so I hadn't seen them before, but I thought... They were really great. And to step up to like a Scream Queen role, it's such an archetype in a slasher movie. And Winnie, you know, you really feel for her of having solved this murder spree, solved this kind of killing by this brilliantly designed angel killer. This is the town of Angel Falls, is it? Angel Falls. Not to be confused with Bedford Falls from It's a Wonderful (laughs) Life. Any comparison is just coincidental. In Angel Falls, every time somebody gets murdered, a Bedford gets its wings? Is that (laughs) how that works? Um, So, yeah, the town of Angel Falls, she solves the murder, she solves the killing. And maybe we're getting too far ahead of ourselves too quickly, but I like that the film explores she has to deal with the consequences of everything that happened. That a year later, she is still deeply wrestling with everything that happened being involved in a serial killer plot. That would absolutely mess you up. And And having to reckon with that then sends her into this alternate world where she never existed in true It's a Wonderful Life slash Shrek Forever After form wow. uh, to, to to solve the mystery all over again. 
can't believe you got Shrek into this. My goodness, always, um, always managed always to get Shrek, Shrek in. into it. And also, I mean, there, there are, there is some kind of tragic irony in her, in her setup here. So basically, the the person she is trying to save as she eventually kills the killer in this in the first act is her brother, right? That is the, the 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 sort of snapping point. That is the moment where she's like, I have to stop this guy or it's my brother's life. And and it is really very much in the moment where he's about to be killed, she she charges in the last minute and, and saves her brother. And then her parents, who are played by Joel McHale and I think it's Aaron Boys, they totally continue to favour her brother. He is still the golden child in this family, even though their daughter literally saved the town from a serial killer. The following year, she gets a slightly passive, not even slightly, she gets a very passag um, gift of of a basically a tracksuit for Christmas and he gets a car. Now, I am not a parent. <laughs> I'm not a parent. But I feel like that disparity in gift giving mm. is not great parenting. Yeah. Right? Have you ever been in that situation of like you effectively got the tracksuits in that situation? Yes. Yes. So um so when I was quite small, myself and my sister would get a small present on the other person's birthday. Right. Okay. So on on my birthday, I got some big my little pony thing and she got a my little pony. Okay. Mm-hmm. On her birthday, she got some big my little pony thing. It was very big at the time. And I got a pair of tights. Ooh. Now a lot of years have passed, but I'm I remember that. I'm telling you that yeah. story. This kid gets I mean, I don't even think these are tights. I think this is even worse than that in comparison, yeah. right? I mean, uh, th- this is a funny film as well, we should say, because Michael Kennedy um imbued a lot of humor into Freaky. So this is a comedy slasher. It's a Christmas slasher, but it's a comedy slasher as well. It did really crack me up when Winnie dismisses it as I got this lesbian tracksuit and he gets a fucking car. Um really really cracked me up. Um absolutely great line, incredible delivery from Jane Winnip. Uh yeah, I, I mean, look the, the tracksuit is not the worst. It's a pink velour tracksuit, which mm. weirdly I think is kind of in at the moment. The whole like They're back. juicy couture yeah. thing has come all the way back around, which freaks me out because mm-hmm. that should have stayed in the distant past. But Gen Z is going to Gen Z and, and make that cool again, apparently. Not that Winnie thinks so in that moment. No, no, very, very much not. So, I mean, I guess let's talk a little bit about the wider time. I mean, first, first of all, I will say in her brother's defence, he's quite good about it. I mean, he should tell off her parents and say, this is ridiculous, what are you doing? But at least he says, obviously we're going to share it and you can use it whenever you want. So, you know, some some props to her brother at that point. That That's not that's not wildly off base. But the wider town is, is an interesting one. So uh, Joel McHale and Erin Boys is her parents, not great parents. And when she goes into this other reality, when she is flung into the reality where she never existed and the killer is still on the loose, and by the way, her brother is dead because she wasn't there to save him, things get really messed up in that family really fast. Yeah, like she is the linchpin holding everybody together. I feel like even if the serial killer hadn't carried on killing everybody, things wouldn't have gone well for that family without Winnie in the mix. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think the film has to do a lot of heavy lifting in the first half hour to set up Winnie, to set up the serial killer, to set up her family dynamic, and set up the mayor, played by Justin Long, who is really in his horror era at the moment. I mean, I I love him from 
Drag Me to Hell. But in more recent years, he's, you know, been doing some really wild horror work in things like um, Tusk and Barbarian. Barbarian and now especially, this. my God. Barbarian is wild. Um, I can't believe we're talking about these films on a Christmas podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry to take us to this place, Helen. Um, so Justin Long is really hamming it up as the mayor here with his, with his one big shiny tooth and his weird wig. Um, and he gets lots of the kind of outright comedy lines um and because it's doing the it's a wonderful life thing it has to partly be not just hey what happens if this person goes away but like what is the dynamic of this town what is happening with the townsfolk and the sense of community or spirit within this town that has to play into the final act because that is such a huge part of it's a wonderful life um, that you know, there's quite a lot to crowbar into that opening chunk of the film, but in that mix is yeah, the their the Carruthers family dynamic, which is not healthy. <laughs> Joel McHale is a bad dad in this, and yeah, you you feel this kind of I think loving rivalry between Winnie and her brother, mm-hmm. um, as much as he you know is ludicrously overfavored by the parents with that glorious SUV as a present. You, you you get some warmth between those two. You feel that family connection. I thought that was pretty well drawn. Yeah. And there is also the, we should say, the, you know, sort of slightly more positive figure of her aunt, who is called, or first of all, is called Gail, which I think is a very blatant scream reference. And I think there's quite a lot of scream DNA in this. And to be Definitely. honest, I felt more scream DNA than I did It's a Wonderful Life DNA. And it's interesting because um, there was an in, uh, there was an interview with Jane Widdop where they said that there was uh, there were earlier shots where they mimicked. Do you remember the very famous shot from It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey is spreading his arms out wide to describe the size of his suitcase that he wants to go traveling? Right. So there was a shot that exactly mimicked that and things like that that gave it a bit more specific. It's a Wonderful Life. DNA and and that one was lost to the cutting room floor. There are still some shots that that echo that, but but some of them are lost. Anyway, so speaking of scream DNA, which is where I started with this, um, Catherine Isabel it plays her aunt Gail, and that is a scream reference if ever I heard one. And of course, Catherine Isabel herself is a bit of a scream queen. She's the lead of the Ginger Snaps franchise, um, which is a fantastic series of werewolf movies. So there, there's a lot of kind of referencing horror movies of the past and classics that way yeah i mean that's the glorious thing about horror cinema as a community as Mm -hmm. as filmmakers and as fans there is such a a joy in leaning into the lineage and that absolutely comes through in in slasher films and i kind of feel it's maybe the same in christmas movies it's been such a thing especially in recent years in this streaming era in the era that demands helen o'hara's bar humbug podcast (laughs) that you basically get like christmas movie universes that i think netflix just to some of those bonkers christmas movies all cross over it's it becomes its own little weird corner of the industry where everybody you know is referencing what everybody else is doing and oh this person's cast in this one and it's a separate thing but they were in this christmas movie which just gives it a sense of kind of knowing fun if you're in on that if you know those references you don't need that to enjoy the film but yeah i think there's a big crossover there between horror movies and christmas movies yeah, I think that's that's true as well. And I think also, you know, th- there's a crossover between horror and comedy, you know, because it, both, I think, depend very much on timing. Both depend very much on 
just getting that that balance of emotion right, if that mm. makes sense. So it makes sense for me that, you know, someone very funny people like Justin Long and Joel McHale would be in here as well. And of course, Joel McHale also has a bit of a, a horror background. If you, if you include things like, you know, the happy time murders and stuff like that, <laughs> which I do. Now this, this film, like I, I love the premise and I love the setup and I think Jane Woodup is great. And I, I actually like the cast generally. I think, you know, the, the characters playing the friends and the sort of the wider family really, really strong. I did struggle with some of the plot turns in the second half. So, you know, there's a sort of, you know, Jane obviously comes into this new reality knowing who the killer is, but does she? Has things, have things changed there over the course of this year? And that, I kind of saw that what was coming, coming, but I also didn't love where it went which was a bit of a problem for me. Hello, I'm Kate Lever, host of Who's a Good Dog, the podcast for anyone who's ever loved a dog. We're one of the other podcasts in the Stripped Media family. Each episode, I ask a brilliant person to introduce me to their dog and tell me how having a dog has changed their life. Listen to Who's a Good Dog wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Let's do a little spoiler section here. So if people haven't seen the film yet, go away, watch the film. The next, let's say, five, ten minutes, we're going to talk about some spoilers in the second half, okay? Because I feel like it's worth it's worth doing at this point. Yeah, so if we're doing spoilers, I, I did see it coming that Winnie's dad was going to be the killer in the other reality. I don't know if that's just because I'm used to these slash-up films by now and know that, hey, if you're repeating this situation, often that's because you're going to deliver some kind of remixed outcome that is going to, you know, change the game a bit from what you think you're watching. So I, I was expecting that. It wasn't a surprise. But I did kind of like the the idea that this whole family has been plunged into grief. That overall, this, this kind of um, colourful bloody Christmas horror film actually is dealing with grief. That is, mm. Winnie's whole situation is that she is just still so messed up from losing her best friend and the guilt that she couldn't save her friend. Yes, she saved her brother. Yes, she stopped the killer, unmasked him, killed him. Uh, but it's like, I, I couldn't save my friend and that is destroying her. And seeing in this other reality of like, oh, if I wasn't there to stop the killer, then my brother doesn't survive and the killings are still happening. And that then the ramifications of that for the rest of her family, that they are all deeply, deeply cartoonishly messed up, I will say, how bleak their life has become in the course of that year that her mum is like engaging in a series of random affairs in plain sight and... Yeah, Winnie's dad is now one of the killers because he's kind of under the control of the mayor who was unmasked early on as the original killer. I, I it, it was it was a bit janky, 
there's some slightly janky storytelling in this, but the I I liked how it all connected back to the idea yeah. of of the family grieving over these losses. No, that that's true, and I thought that was that was a, a you know a sort of interesting thing to explore because a lot of films don't simply don't. Um, I think my issue w- with it was more that it felt a little. Um, it just felt strange. It felt strange to me, if I'm honest. And I think, I think the reason that I maybe struggled with it the way that I do, at least partly, is I also struggled with some of the things that have happened to the town. Now, I quite like the idea that there's a kind of economic impetus behind what the mayor is doing. He's not just killing at random. He is actually killing the children of people who own businesses that he wants to buy. And he's sort of trying to break those people so that he can get control of their assets. Now, that's a really interesting motive for a psycho killer. And I love it because, you know, quite frankly, actually, when they tested a bunch of CEOs and people like that, a lot of them do test for psychopathic traits. So, it, you know, turning him into a psychopathic killer, not that big a stretch. That worked <laughs> really well for me. What I struggled a little bit with was the the idea that the town is almost hypnotized by the mayor. So you you have this big sort of, you know, event that Winnie has to eventually confront him at, and everyone's just sort of standing there almost zombified under his yeah. control. And I felt like the film has not, <laughs> apart from the idea that she's been transported into another reality, that the Northern Lights are somehow involved. That, none, no, no other sort of supernatural or element has been established. So I was a bit like, I feel like I'm I'm struggling a little bit yeah. here. I like the idea that the whole town is kind of hypnotised by this guy, but you haven't justified it to this degree. Yeah, it's suddenly like we're in the realm of green-eyed mind control. It's like, this is just a part of this film now. Just go with it. You're 80 minutes in. Accept it at this point. Um, Yeah, that kind of comes out of nowhere. And for me, tied into that whole thing that we touched on earlier of like, there kind of has to be an element of the town rising up together Mm -hmm. or being rallied um, to unite against this figure because that is the it's a wonderful life of it all of it's not just george bailey it's the town coming together to save him uh, and winnie kind of galvanizes everybody but it felt like a very ridiculous but like a shorthand just to be like you just need to believe at this point that the townsfolk are all in on the mayor so that then we can flip it and have Winnie break them out of that. But yeah, if you stop and think for even more than half a second about how the green-eyed mind control works, uh, yeah, they, they just they just throw that in there, just spicing it up in the final just, act. You know, a little bit, I mean, nothing like a bit of spice at Christmas, I suppose. Yeah, cinnamon. Um, cinnamon, cinnamon all the way. Um, but one person we haven't talked about is, is Bernie, uh, Jess McLeod's character. So this is the, you know, sort of, outcast reject who um who Winnie has to team up with because no one else is willing to give her the time of day uh, in order to to you know set things right and i was i find this quite fun again you know the rules of this time travel slash universe hopping are not entirely clear to me especially as things turn out at the very end but there was it was quite a sweet thing there to see these two young women who have you know, for for various reasons, been kind of ostracized by their peer group, finding some kind of connection in each other and finding a way to work together. Yeah, that romance really worked for me. I think that is part of what this film 
needs in terms of it needs to give you that Christmas warm and fuzzy feeling. And it absolutely does it through the love story. So it's super harsh. This entire town is calling Bernie weirdo. They have just made that her name at this point. Um, And yeah, as you say, she's the outcast, but then she forms this really lovely relationship with Winnie over the course of the film. And yeah, I just really bought into that. I thought there was lovely chemistry there. There's a really nice line when Winnie has had to basically justify what is happening and and say, look, no, I have come from this alternate reality. This is how I prove this to you. And they bond quite quickly. And Bernie says to her, we've only just met, but I have no doubt this town is better with you in it. And that was so sweet. That was such a lovely, sweet line. I like that they go to the cinema together. Um, And their bond through the film, seeing that Winnie you know, has somebody to bond with in this situation, has somebody who will be on her side, but also that when she gets back to her own reality at the end of the film, that she has something extra to live for, in a sense. It was a really sweet thing. Yeah, I I loved that part of this film. That and the killings uh, felt like the points where the film was at its most confident when it really knew what it was doing. We we joke on Empire about you being a a serial killer and that line is not going to dissuade anyone (laughs) from that notion. Um, I should be clear, we we joke about that because Ben is the nicest man alive. But but also, I mean, the the Winnie and Bernie relationship, I love that she calls her Clarence. Um, You know, there is an explicit... It's a wonderful life reference there, which is which is nice to see. And there there were other moments. There's the moment where she's sort of looking at the kind of wasteland where this development is going to be put up in the town, and that's very much like the moment where George Bailey goes to uh, to see you know the community of houses that he and his family and his bank built, only to find nothing there. You know those kind of things um, were explicit references, I guess, to. It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm such a nerd for that film that I I love that stuff. Um, but yeah, I just, I maybe just wanted a couple more, but the Clarence reference put, put warmth in my heart. Yeah. And if we're, I don't know, are we still in the spoiler zone? If you, if you expected this not to be the spoiler zone anymore, little spoiler coming up. But that lovely moment at the end as well, where Bernie says to Winnie, it turns out I wasn't your Clarence. You were my George. Is that the way around that that works? And this revelation that Bernie, you know, was also not feeling like she had much to live for and she planned this to be her last Christmas and actually this connection that she's forged with Winnie has given her something to live for as well. Everybody has a reason to live by the end of this film and that, you know, after all of the murders and all of the uh, blood spilled, murder, 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 um, and some some good, some good tasty murders in this. Uh, I think from a horror side, it stands up pretty well. But yeah, it, it gives you the warm, fuzzy feelings, warm Christmas jumper feelings by the end. Absolutely. So, so quick, quick couple of questions uh, to finish up with. First of all, I mean, I think we, we haven't, talk too much about about the villain but it's a very striking look you know this is this is a really strong kind of iconic villain look it's basically a white mask kind of Rorschach without the ink blot but but I think it works really well I think it feels Christmassy is the wrong word seasonal <laughs> let's say yeah I think give it a year and horror fans are gonna have like a little miniature version of the angel on the top of their Christmas trees <laughs> I I want one of those the mask is really great because a great slasher villain has to have a great mask and this as you say the kind of blank glossy white but there's like an impression of a face there are like mm. dips where eyes should be so it gives you the sort of contours of a face 
so that there's something for you to kind of hold on to and this big like flowing white robe which gives you gives you angel it gives you christmas it gives you snow at the same time is an incredible canvas for these horrifying bloody murders that you are going to see this pristine white getup absolutely slathered in blood at various points is great does raise questions about how many of these the killer has because i want to know what their detergent situation is if they are just washing this one outfit every time and getting all of that bright red blood out of pure mm-hmm. white robes please share the 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 cleaning situation please tell us what detergent you're using what settings your machine is on or <laughs> if you have a series of different outfits for every murder uh, as well as the unethical nature of the murders themselves that is you know pretty bad for the for the environment i'm going to say absolutely do you think we will see another one of these do you think this is the kind of horror that's going to be sequelized and i have a follow on question did you notice on the cinema awning i know what you did last christmas I mean, I'm there. Do it. Do it. I, Straight in. Instantly, I was like, "Well, that I need to see that next." <laughs> but, but do you think there'll be a there'll be a It's a Wonderful Knife two? Yeah, I hope so. Whether it is literally It's a Wonderful Knife two, and as with Happy Death Day to you, they find not only a great title but like a, an interesting, different slash up genre to bring into the mix. I would, I would really enjoy that. If they did the sequel to this, as I know what you did last Christmas. Also, super in, sign me up. Same characters, yep. Otherwise, if they just did a separate film that, as we said, like with the Netflix Christmas universe, it was like, hey, there's maybe a vague connection here, but it's not really a sequel. It's just the same people who made the thing that you like also have made a separate one. I I would be really up for that. Yeah, I think there's a fun, I think there's a real place for this in Christmas cinema. Something like this as well, which it is... It is a cheap movie, and it does look like a Hallmark movie. I think if we're being generous, we could say that, you know, it's intentionally aping the look of a relatively cheap Hallmark Christmas movie. You could also say it is just made on a bit of a shoestring, which is absolutely fine. I'm glad that it exists in the form that it does. Um, But yeah, the, the amount of Christmas movies that are out there, I think there's a real place for these fun Christmas horror movies to be part of that. I will say, in its defence, in terms of budgets, um, I, I very much felt the same way as you do about the the setting and, and there are times where the budget limitations become apparent. And also I'm pr- about 90% sure I recognise the town where it's set or some of the views of Main Street from... Was that Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square? No, I think that was mostly on a set. But this, I mean, I know I've seen this town in Supernatural. I'm pretty sure of that. But Supernatural has, has I think, shot in every small town around Vancouver at some point in its 15-year run, so maybe that's not um, unusual, but I'm pretty sure this was in one of the really good episodes called Mystery Spot. I'd love if anyone can confirm or deny that. So I think there were there were some shots where I was like, oh, I, I know where this is, and it isn't Bedford Falls. And I would, again, I think location-wise, I would have loved to have more of a Bedford Falls-type main street, and if they could have dressed it a bit more like Bedford Falls, that would have been great. But what I do love about this is that it had proper actors, not the kind you get in Hallmark movies. Mm -hmm. These are recognisable faces that we have seen in other things. It had good music. Again, okay, not the sort of really expensive Christmas songs, maybe the sort of Louis Armstrongs or the, you know, whatever else, uh, the Michael Bublé's, but it had recognisable, cool Christmas songs done by actual bands um, and not sort of cheap covers of things that are in the public domain. So... 
it could have been a lot cheaper is what I'm saying. If you watch a lot of these, this could have been a lot cheaper. So I, I appreciate what I think. I feel like they spent their money well, even if they didn't have as much of it as they wanted. Mostly on all that washing detergent, I'm going to say. So much detergent. I'm, I'm Again, I'm slightly worried by how focused you are on getting your robes <laughs> clean. But Look, uh, it's just an issue that everybody has in their life and it would be good for them to share the tips. That's all I'm saying. Super wise, super wise. Well, listen, on that note, on that slightly terrifying, horrifying note, <laughs> I think we'll bring this to an end. But that is It's a Wonderful Knife. It is out on Shudder already as you're listening to this. And we enjoyed it very much. Gives gives you a good case of the Christmas scaries. So, Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. And what's coming up, just before you go, what's coming up on Disneyversity? Because you're getting into some really exciting films right now. Yes. So uh, on Disneyversity, me and my co-host Sam Summers, we're watching every animated Disney film, every Walt Disney Animation Studios movie, one by one. We are several years in and are still not all the way through yet. So we've done the Renaissance, the 90s films, all those classics. We have covered all of those if they're your favourites. Right now we're in the 2000s. We're calling it the Wilderness Years because it's a big old mixed bag of movies. Uh, The last one we did was Atlantis, The Lost Empire. We have Lilo and Stitch coming up, which I'm very excited about. Super excited for that. Um, So yeah, we we are in the middle of the big strange 2000s that the Disney animation studio had. So yeah, absolutely. Please do go and check that out. Also, we have some Christmas episodes. We have a Christmas episode on Mickey's Christmas Carol. Oh, I love it. Uh, And last year we did the Muppet Christmas Carol and we had a special guest for that who is Brian Herring, the puppeteer who uh, was the puppeteer behind BB-8 in the Star Wars movies and also did some puppeteering on Muppet Treasure Island. So he didn't work on Christmas Carol, but he has lots of stories from people he knows who worked on Christmas Carol. And uh, yeah, he came on to talk about how the puppeteering side of that film worked. And it was, yeah, fascinating. So check those out. We might have another Christmas episode coming up. Maybe there's another version of A Christmas Carol that we could do and complete the hat trick. Uh, But yes, plenty going on in the hallowed halls of Disneyversity. And I thoroughly recommend it, even if you think you know everything there is to know about Disney films. I mean, Sam, a literal doctor of animation, has more to tell you. And as do you, Ben, at this point, you know quite a lot about Disney. You know. I know more. I mean, Sam is the expert. I rock up knowing nothing and say the silly things. And then Sam says all the smart stuff. And I, I take some of that credit where I can. Absolutely. Absolutely take it. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us on Bar Humbug and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Well, that's it for this episode of Bah Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! heard a stripped media production. 